Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio strives to investigate how to achieve justice in America, and this includes issues of economic injustice, political injustice, and the criminal justice system. We want to dispel the misconceptions created by the news and entertainment industry, politicians, and our educational system. We hope you will listen. Today, host David Bell delivers his Justice Series Part 4. He speaks with Sabrina Morgan, a Dream Fellowship cohort with Dream.org, about her experiences helping other post-incarcerated individuals with re-entering the world. Our nation has big problems and a lack of leaders to provide solutions. Dream.org created the Dream Fellowship for budding activists who have a bold vision for change and who haven't had a similar opportunity to gain the skills to bring it into being. The Dream Fellowship cohort represents a diverse group of people from across the country working on issues as various as gun violence to reentry at post-incarceration, substance use harm reduction, mental health stabilization, environmental justice, and immigration. Forty percent of Dream Fellows are formerly incarcerated, and an additional 15 percent are the loved ones of people who have been touched by the criminal legal system. Dream Fellowship cohorts are an intergenerational group devoted to seeding an idea for how they will progress and bring justice to our communities. Inmates get an outdate, not an end date. Does the sentence ever truly end for them? Get ready to hear the stories. Sabrina Morgan has a lot to share. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We're in the middle of our justice series, and we've talked to a few guests to define what justice means, usually at the time that the decision is made, either whether a crime occurred or not, or what the sentence should be. But what about justice after the sentence? What factors should we take into account? To help us understand a little bit more about justice after the sentence, I've asked a friend and former client, Sabrina Morgan, to join us, and I'll let her explain a little bit more about her history. Sabrina, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And just real quick, you were born in Missouri, went to Park Hill High School, and then UMKC. You graduated with a bachelor's there, and then you actually wound up going to law school. I did. And so... What happened? I had battled addiction for a long time. And then when I got to law school, I had decided that I was going to quit all drugs. And when I did, a lot of the mental illnesses that had propelled my drug addiction started to come out and be more transparent. And I started having panic attacks and I was dealing with depression and anxiety and things. And because I was trying to stay away from drugs, it was overwhelming and it was too much. And so I decided that it wasn't the time for me to be in law school. So after that first year, I quit. You actually started using some form of stimulant as a teenager. Yes. And tell us a little bit about that. So I was young. I was, 
I don't remember exactly when it was, but I was probably 13, 12, 13 or 14. I was somewhere in there. And I know that sounds crazy that I don't remember exactly, but I don't because it wasn't a huge defining moment because I had been really battling body dysmorphia and I felt like I was really fat and I didn't like myself. I didn't like to look at myself. And once you start getting into those teenage years, you start feeling the pressures of of, of needing to succeed in school. At least I did. So I started really having a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression and a lot of things that I was struggling with. But the biggest thing was the body dysmorphia. And so I started taking diet pills and I started taking over-the-counter things to try to help curb my appetite. And when somebody offered me to try meth, I was like, sure, why not? Let's give it a shot. I mean, I was down to try anything at that point. Like When you're obsessed with your body and you're obsessed with how you look, the stigma of drugs just kind of eludes you because you're like, I'll be fine. I've tried all this other stuff. Nothing's, nothing bad has happened. It'll, it'll be fine. So I tried meth and I was able to run 10 miles a day, study at school, do like a thousand steps at night. And, you know, I could just keep going and I wasn't hungry and I was happy because I was losing weight and I felt thin. It made me feel in control. And it was weird because depression and anxiety were always an underlying problem that was masked by my drug use. And my drug use had gotten out of control. I had tried to stop before. I went to rehab very unsuccessfully. All we did was sit around and talk about war stories all day long. And all I wanted to do by the the end of the day was to go and use. But I was a closet user. I wasn't like, let's go to parties and hang out with other people. Everything I did was undercover. I lived a double life. So like my family didn't know that I was on drugs. And really, for the most part, most of my friends, my the people closest to me, they had no idea because I was embarrassed by my drug use. I knew that I was addicted, but I didn't want to stop. And I knew that if I let anybody else in, first of all, I was embarrassed about it. But second of all, I'd have to quit. They would encourage me to quit. I would disappoint them. And so I didn't really share with people what was going on with me. I kept everything to myself. And so when I got into law school, I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna leave it all behind. And then I ended up, I started drinking I thought, oh, this is great. I'll drink. And then I was the life of the party and it was so much fun. And I got into real estate and I did well for a while. I got, oh, well, I did well for quite a long time, really. My, I met my ex-husband. I decided that it was a good idea to get married to somebody that doesn't do drugs. He drank, right. but he didn't do drugs. So I was like, this is my out. I'll stay away from anybody that's like any kind of bad, anything bad. This will be great. And then I got pregnant with my daughter and I realized that this was not what I wanted yeah. <laughs> at all. When she was about four, I pulled the trigger on the divorce. I had managed my, my anxiety and my depression for quite some time. I was just, I was distracted with other things and it wasn't, you know, front and center stage to me. It just kind of, it didn't go away. It was always there. But when I was going through my divorce, it wasn't the divorce part. It was sharing custody that got so difficult because she was always with me. And then now week on, week off, I didn't have her. And so I went to the doctor and I got, he ended up putting me on ADHD meds, Adderall, which is not far off from methamphetamines mm -hmm. and Xanax. And so here I am taking these prescription drugs and I'm starting to spiral more and more Adderall during the day, Xanax at night, and your brain chemistry starts getting skewed. And, and what's important, what's reality is it starts getting skewed. It's easy to start losing sight of reality. 
And so it didn't take very long that I, I ran into an old friend. He offered me meth and I was like, yep, let's do that. And so then I was back again. And that coming back to it that time was the scariest thing because it was so much bigger. My addiction was so much bigger the second time around and it was so out of control. And I wasn't just worried about, oh, I got to go get some drugs. I, I had to have those drugs. Those drugs needed to be near me, decent quantities of it. And so it, it spiraled. It got out of control really bad. And you were eventually charged in 2014 in a federal conspiracy case. Yes. And you were 37 at that time. Yes. You had no criminal convictions at that point. Right. So tell us a little bit about a federal conspiracy case involving meth, guns. Yeah. So, you know, I was doing a lot of drugs, but at the same time, I was still really good at leading a double life. And I just acted crazier. And the people around me, I think, thought I was just losing my mind more and more. And then and then I was arrested. I was picked up by the feds and indicted. But before that, it, it was the wild, wild west. And with so many addictions and in the drug world, it's very hard to extract yourself away from that and pull out of that. Because once you're into it, if you're selling drugs, people are counting on you to get those drugs. And they don't just let that go. So even when you're like, no, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. You have people really pushing you to do it because they're like, I need this. Like, why aren't you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? So, you know, it's just a really hard cycle to get yourself out of. So when I was arrested, it was kind of a relief. It was a relief. But at the same time, like that one thing that I was so ashamed of and so afraid to completely just let it out there that I am an addict, it was right there in center stage. It was there for everybody to see. It was out in the public eye. It was everywhere. It was on the internet. Everybody knew about it. And it was horrible and really great at the same time because I was really tired. I was so tired of that lifestyle and it was literally the only thing that could get me out of it. And so when they arrested me, they took me to Osceola for federal holding for just a couple of days. And so then when I was released, I was released on pretrial. And pretrial release is one of the scariest places to be because you know you're going to prison, especially with the federal system. You know you're going to prison. You're going to go. Right. But in order to survive your days, you have to lie to yourself sometimes. And you're like, you know what? You're doing great. You're out here. You're, you know, surely they're going to give you a break because you're doing so good. And I had a really incredible PO that was, he was awesome. And I, the first time I met with him, he was just real cool. And he's so, you ready to ready to do some rehab and I was like yeah let's do this he's okay I got a really good one for you he's it's out in Lee Summit he's obviously your detox so you'll just do an outpatient and so I started going to rediscover and I really liked it because it was it was unlike the first rehab that I went to where it was just sit around and talk about war stories it was more about therapy it was we talked about trauma we talked about you know the underlying causes of what put us in this situation what brought us here rather than Let's sit around and talk about like the, the good old days because they're not the good old days. And just to go back for a little bit, what I'm hearing, and I know we're trying to condense a lifetime, if you will, yeah. in, in a few minutes, but I'm hearing a, a young woman, age 14 or so, this body dysmorphia, which yep. it, I get the impression that a lot of women and some men certainly face. Yes. So that kind of gets you comfortable with something, meth or something akin to meth and comfortable in a way that you're kind of making yourself feel better by, in your words, kind of looking better. Yeah. And then at some point that takes on almost an addiction form and you're still trying to do that. And then at some point it almost takes on a, another factor, a shame form, because now you're an addict, but 
but then you don't want to admit that I am an addict. And so now you have to do the drugs almost to maintain a status quo so no one finds out that you're an addict. Right. And then it sounds like in addition to that, when you were selling, people were depending on you. Yeah. And you knew why they were depending on you because you had been through those and you were still going through the very right. same struggles that they were going through. So it almost gave you, in a weird sense, I don't know, kind of a purpose. It did. And, and you're absolutely right because it does, you know, and it does provide a purpose because you are important, I guess. But at the same time, you don't want to be like that's not it's such a weird space to be in because you just really you don't know who you are or what you're trying to be. And you might know that it's wrong. But at the same time, that thing that comforted you for so long, it's hard to tell your brain that one thing that helped you through so much stuff is bad. Right. Because certainly it sounds like in many areas, or at least for some time periods of your life, it worked. It did Right. Work. It helped you look, it helped you look better in your mind, which maybe helps you feel better. Yeah. It helps you do a thousand sit-ups and run right. 10 miles and go through college and do well and get into law school. And so there's a part of it. And I certainly I was thinking about meth and I know World War II, I think they gave meth or mm -hmm. the Germans gave meth to fighter pilots, I believe. I mean, there's uses of meth in our society or other societies that there's certainly a positive to it, but it comes along with many negatives. But then at some point, it sounds like at your arrest for this case and you're released on pretrial and you're out for a few years it almost forced you to look inward and figure out who I am and then be comfortable with that. Yeah. And so how do you do that? So you're arrested and everything that you were ashamed of and hiding is now out there in the public. And now here you have this looming prison sentence ahead, which causes all kinds of stress. But to me, it, was, it felt like I, it was time to either sink or swim. There was a guy that I spoke with when I got arrested. He was like, listen, this sucks and I'm sorry you're going through this, and I'm sorry for where you've been, but you have this really good opportunity right now to transform and change. And like, you just have to really work on that person, that now's the time, now's the time to really bring that person out. You can let all this other stuff go. This can be your moment of change. And so when I sat in federal holding for a couple of days, I really, I, it rang through my mind when I was like, okay, well, this could be my, this is my opportunity. Like I was tired, like I felt tired. I was tired of everything. And uh, I was like, well, I mean, this is my one shot. Now I've been forced to be extracted from that lifestyle because I don't have a, I don't have an opportunity. I was taking drug tests all the time. So I was like, I don't, I can't trick this system. I'm pretty smart. And I was able to like play games with stuff before, but this, but not with the federal system. And that was good because I needed that. I needed that structure and the accountability and in being on pretrial, I knew I had to stay away from anybody that could possibly bring me into any kind of trouble whatsoever. And so I just eliminated that from my life. But pretrial is difficult because you don't know what your sentence is going to be. You know it's ha it's going to happen, but you do lie to yourself and you tell yourself over and over, it's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Maybe you'll get probation. With a giant case and people are like confused because you're out. Most people don't understand the federal system. And so it's difficult to talk to normal people because they're like, Oh, they're not going to send you to prison. Look at you now. Look what you're doing. Like, you're doing so good. But I had this one friend who had been through the federal system, and I trained with him. I, I weight trained with him almost every day. And I would come in there mad about something because I used to be so addicted to anger, and I was just angry about everything. And I'd come in, and I'd be like, you won't believe this. And I'd start telling him this thing. He's like, I don't get it. What don't you get? What do you mean? Like, how am I not supposed to be mad about this? He's like, none of that matters. None of that matters. It's time for you to let go of all this anger and 
all this animosity and thinking that you're going to fight for change because you don't have that opportunity anymore. You need to shut up and sit down. And when you're on the other side of this, you don't have to do that anymore. You can go on with your life, he said. But until then, you need to get it through your head that all of this random stuff that's angering you so bad, it doesn't matter. And I would be like, hey, do you think I'm going to go to prison too? He's absolutely. You're going to go to prison for a while and then you're going to come back and you'll reunite with your daughter and you're going to go on with your life. It's going to be tough. All of it's going to be tough, but you're going to do it and you're going to come out on the other side and you're going to be fine as long as you do this with the right mindset. How old were you when you were sentenced to prison? Do you remember? I was 40. And how old was your daughter? She was 13 when I got sentenced. When I turned myself in and took my plea, she was 12. But when you were sentenced, she was 13. 13. And I remember thinking at the time that what we would hope to be able to get you out by her college graduation. Yeah. So you wind up getting a sentence of nine years. Yes. And so you go to federal prison and you wind up catching a little bit of a break, actually a lot of bit of a break. Yeah. And that is what? I was released on the CARES Act during the pandemic. They created the CARES Act. And in that CARES Act, it provided that federal inmates, if you had 18 months to the door, to the end of your, your outdate, that you would only do 25% of your time. And then anybody, anything over that, you would do 50% of your time. And I remember I had been, I was so mad that I, when I took my plea, I had to turn myself in. And now I'm so grateful for it because had I not gone in when I did, I wouldn't have hit my 50% mark and gotten out on the CARES Act when I did. So everything worked out nicely. So you were released from actual prison when? June 1st, 2021. All right. And you were released with an ankle monitor. I was. And as we're recording this right now, I asked you to show me and you showed me you have an ankle monitor. I have an ankle monitor. And so you're released from prison, but you're still in the custody of the Bureau of Prisons right now. I am. And it's a really, the CARES Act is a pretty amazing deal because it was created out of haste and it was like an accident, but it turned out to be a really good program. And so there was quite a few people, there, there was... I think 27,000 people that were released on the CARES Act to home confinement. And there's a less than 1% recidivism rate for that group of people. They're not releasing anyone on CARES Act anymore. And I find that unfortunate. I feel like it should be codified. And here's why. In prison, everything's the same. Everyone wears the same clothes. Everybody smells the same. Everybody looks the same. Your day is completely planned for you for the most part with a, just a little bit of freedoms and choices in between. And so when you release somebody from prison, especially federal prison with their lengthy sentences, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that taking somebody out of that environment and putting them into the free world that's like just so chaotic. You've got colors. Everybody's wearing different colors. Everybody's wearing different colognes and perfumes. And it's overwhelming. I had a panic attack at the bank. There was ladies that were all wearing these giant eyelashes. And I, deep down inside, I was slightly panicking. It was almost too much. But it's the differences in what you see, like your visual, like it, it's all your senses. They're overwhelmed. And I was only gone for four years. But in that small amount of time, my ability to make choices when I came out, like that part of my brain was missing. And so with the CARES Act, with home confinement, you work off of what a, an itinerary. And so your day starts at 12, a, or 12 a.m. and your day ends at 11.59 p.m. And this itinerary is approved a week in advance by your case manager. So your whole day is accounted for. 
This is where you're going to be at this time. And you do this a week in advance. And I remember when I first sat down to do this, I was like, how is this possible? Like, how am I supposed to know what I am doing next Wednesday? Like, how is this possible? This is crazy. But I did it. And then you start finding yourself in a routine, mostly out of laziness, because you don't feel like redoing your whole itinerary. You can just change the dates from week to week. And you're like, this is good. This is fine. It worked last week. Let's do it again this week. But it's that structure and it's the accountability and it's calling into the halfway house. As of today, I've called into my halfway house to check in 2,805 times because you check in three times a day and you see your case manager once a week and you do a UA once a week. And there's all these things that keep you within the structure. And the itinerary is an amazing tool to help you learn to say no, because you can't be pulled in all these directions because you can't go to these places that all these people want you to go to. So that is helpful. And I think that is the key for letting people, for releasing people from prison. But more than that, I feel like there needs to be a comprehensive plan for people. What I'm hearing, and I've discussed this previously, I try to study mindfulness, meditation, things like that. And one of the ideas behind it is to kind of quiet the mind. And one of the ways you do that is you sit on a pillow mm-hmm. and you close your eyes and the mind kind of quiets down. And it sounds to me, to a certain extent, that what you're describing in prison is a, is a quieting of these outside stimuli, right? You're not given a lot of choices. Your brain doesn't have to work that hard. You just have to move your legs towards the lunchroom or whatever, right. or the mess hall, and they're going to feed you and then move this direction, move that direction. And so to that extent, it quiets things down a little bit. At the same time, it sounds like you're not being able to practice what is going to happen when all of a sudden you're smacked in the face with all these stimuli again when you get released. Right. And so that sounds like it takes a transition, a process of transition. It does. And maybe that is what's potentially missing. But I guess, Sabrina, I asked you here to talk about justice, and it sounds to me like you got a nine-year sentence and you got out in four years, and so that sounds like justice. So... So what are we missing? What is, What are we missing here in that definition of justice? So if you had asked me what is justice before I went to prison, I would have said cliche things like, oh, let the punishment fit the crime. Everyone has a right to a fair trial, all these different things. But then once I crossed over and I became involved with the justice system and I became an inmate and now on the other side of it all, I feel like we're missing the mark for justice. And I think that the unfortunate part is that An inmate gets an out date, but they don't get an end date because even once you're released, you're still surrounded by this stigma. Before the sun comes up, I'm already going to be judged as an addict and a felon before the date even begins, before I even make the correct choices and head in the right direction. I'm already going to be put in those pots. And felons are the last group of people that it's socially acceptable to discriminate against. We're the last ones. And it's unfortunate because we have so many people incarcerated in this country, and the majority of those people are going to come out of prison, and we need to do better. We need to come up with comprehensive plans. And it, and just because the CARES Act was made out of haste, it was done right. And I feel like we need to work, we need to take that structure and then work out from there on what else we can do. Because I feel like there needs to be some sort of comprehensive plan for people. You can't just let people sit in, in, in prison in a warehouse of flesh, if you will, 
and then cut them loose in society and be like, hey, good luck. So it, it, it sounds like the CARES Act, from what you're saying, is this little experiment mm-hmm. that you got to benefit from has ended for anybody else. You're in it, but they're not releasing anybody else on Correct. it. Correct. And so the experiment, whether it was by mistake or otherwise, has worked and it's effective. Yes. But yet it's going away. It's or- going away and it's unfortunate. And I think it's I think that our stories are so important and I think it's so important for people in my situation to tell their stories and to share their successes and their failures because people on the other side, people that like even for yourself, like you're an attorney, you deal you've dealt with a lot of cases, but you have no idea what it's like on the inside and you never would. Right. But that's where the stories from people on my side have to come in and be able to explain and illustrate things that happen in there and then things when we come out, how that looks and how that feels to us so that we can come up with comprehensive plans and really work together to bring people home and keep them out of incarceration. Our guest today is Sabrina Morgan. We've been talking to her about her prison journey and about her transition from prison into society. We've also been speaking to her about barriers to entry that make the out date, not necessarily the end date of a sentence. When we come back in the second half hour, we'll learn more about what Sabrina is doing in her own life to overcome these barriers and what she's doing to help others. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Support for KKFI brought to you by the Midwest Trust Center at Johnson County Community College. Now welcoming audiences for its 2023 season. Performances include blues, rock, jazz, classical, world music, comedy, and children's programming. See the full season and learn more at jccc.edu slash Midwest Trust Center. Hello, KKFI listeners. This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio. Beginning January 24th, AR is moving to Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Don't miss a single edition of Alternative Radio at 90.1 FM on your dial and kkfi.org. And thanks for supporting Community Radio KKFI. Join us Sunday, February 4th at Mike Kelly's Westsider for a Valentine's Day gift showcase benefiting KKFI. Live music by Tracer Heights. Opening act by Brittany McGee. Nine different local vendors and food and beverages. Once again, Sunday, February 4th, from 1 to 5 p.m. at Mike Kelly's West Sider. A Valentine's Day gift showcase benefiting KKFI. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Sabrina Morgan. In the first half hour, we talked about Sabrina's journey to prison and her subsequent release under the CARES Act. We're now going to focus a little bit more on barriers to entry that she has faced and continues to face. Let's talk about the kind of the two different aspects that we've discussed so far about your kind of entree into drug addiction and then prison and then coming out. One of them seems to be a stigma, and we'll talk about that and mm-hmm. how that kind of rests on you as almost like a blanket, a weighted blanket in a bad way. And the other is kind of the ability to actually succeed in society through habit or through being able to deal with a lot of stimuli. So let's talk about the stigma first. 
a few months ago, I invited you to a breakfast for the Center for Conflict Resolution. It's a big breakfast at a, some hotel. You came and I invited other people. There were judges and prosecutors and police officers and various members of the community. And I remember you walked in and you dressed up and looking very nice. And I think only two people in that room of 500 knew at the time <laughs> that, that you had an ankle bracelet on. Not an anklet, but you had an ankle bracelet, a monitor right. on. It was you and me. Right. And I wondered just internally, I'm just sharing with you, do I introduce you? How do I introduce you to someone? And that's a reflection of my own wondering, well, is it, are you embarrassed by it? Are they going to be concerned by it? And I'm wondering how that plays into your mind on a day-to-day basis. It sounds like now you're doing great with it. You've got a blog, the whole bit, but I would assume when you first get out, you're like, wow, you've, the shame of you being, having, being an addict at some point, right. that was exposed and maybe there's a certain freeing experience there, but now you're coming out of prison and that's like a whole new set of mental barriers there. So I know when you got out of prison, you went to a party or you were asked to come to a party of a, a relative who was in law enforcement. And mm-hmm. so the party's going to be just chock full of law enforcement. And so I'm wondering in terms of on your way over to the party, this is your first kind of almost like a debutante ball <laughs> and you're like coming out and what's through your mind? Is this thing we're talking about here going through your mind at that time? Yeah, it was horrible. And I'll take it a step further. It wasn't just law enforcement. It was Homeland Security. They okay. were, he was retiring from Homeland Security. So there's going to be all these people from Homeland Security. There was a lot, there was lawyers. I mean, it, there was going to be a lot of people there. And I bullied myself the whole way there. I was like, I had to bully myself in the car to go there. There was several times that I was like, I'm just going to turn around. I'm going to turn around. Like, this is too much. And it was, I was fresh out of prison. I was like, I don't know. I talked to my case manager. I'm like, hey, can I go to this? And they're like, yeah, go. I think it'll be really good for you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what, are, what are you, if you could look back at that car ride over, what are you scared of? What, help us understand the fear or the anxiety or what's giving rise to it. I was afraid for how people would receive me because in my mind, I'm flashing through all of my addiction, my life, my prison incarceration, seeing myself on con air and shackles and chains. And then here I am on the other side with these people that have, they're good people, never been in trouble, anything. And in prison, you have all the people that are at ground zero. Everybody's at the same stage in their in their life and everybody is starting at the very bottom, but everybody's in the same boat. And so then when you come out and you have to go into society where these are not your people, this isn't what I'm used to. These people are going to judge me, but they didn't. They were Mm. really cool to me and they were okay with me. In fact, they were fascinated by prison. They wanted to know all about prison. And people were like, I I don't want to pry, but if you don't mind telling me your stories, I would just, I want to hear, I want to know. And so I realized that, like, people do want to know because it's not everybody goes to federal prison. And you just, you don't realize that. And you don't realize that, yeah, you went to prison and you did some things, but you also have an education that you, you didn't mean to get, but you got it. And so I think going to that party and then realizing that I do have a story that people really want to hear about was encouraging to me. And I don't think a lot of people coming out of prison have that same experience necessarily. They don't get put in that kind of situation. But it really spoke to me in that I felt I really needed to tell my story. And I had already been blogging. And then I got started doing the TikTok thing and things like that. It sounds like you you leaned into 
whatever that fear was. Yeah. And it turns out your first major experience was super positive. Yes. And I think you told me when we talked about this before today that you credit that party. I do. And their response with a part of your success here. I do. I really do. Because, I mean, I just kind of ripped the Band-Aid off. Some people go, may go to dinner. I just go to a, the Homeland Security, somebody from Homeland Security's retirement party with all these people. And it was incredibly overwhelming. But at the same time, I'm super grateful for it because it did rip that Band-Aid off. And it made me realize that I'm judging people that I think are judging me. And that's not okay either. A lot of judging going on. There's a lot of judging going on. But I'm wondering about the person who's not Sabrina Morgan, who doesn't have, who didn't come from a two-parent household with educated right. parents and potentially grandparents and a structure to come back to. They're not coming back to a Homeland Security retirement party. No. And and then I'm wondering how for those individuals, and we'll talk about the itinerary and things like that in terms of the actual skills and things, but how do those individuals... How do they break through that mental barrier without wanting to go to or without actually going back to the very thing that made them comfortable to begin with, which right. was drugs? Right. I think it's incredibly tough on a lot of people. The people that I was in prison with at, in, in a camp, we're all pretty peaceful creatures. Everybody that I was in prison with that's gotten out, I, can't, I don't know of one person that's messed up and gone back. Like They're all doing really well, but the majority of them were released on the CARES Act. But... Coming out of prison, though, it's incredibly difficult. And you have to have some sort of guardrail. You, If you don't have family, you don't have the support that you need, you don't have those guardrails up. And I think that's why so many people reoffend, Because you go back. Humans, no matter what it is, you come back to whatever you feel comfortable in. Whether it's bad or good, you're still going to come back to that. Whatever you're most familiar with, you're going to come back to it. And I think that why it's so difficult. And I think that's why we really need to start focusing more on restorative justice rather than incarcerate, but to work on the healing and the healing, not just between the person and maybe their victim, but healing between the person and their community and their families. Because I think there's so much pain that's caused from incarceration that you don't necessarily see. Like the kids that are involved. There's so many kids that their parents are in prison, and that's horrible. That's, I mean, that that's a terrible thing. And the lengthy prison sentences and things that they're passing out, I just feel like it's unnecessary. Four years sitting in a prison camp, we had no fence. It was just a painted yellow line on the ground that we weren't supposed to cross. And so, you know, you had people sitting there crocheting and just minding their own business. Nobody tried to leave. Nobody tried to escape. We didn't even have a shoe or a segregated housing unit. We didn't have any of that stuff. Like if somebody was bad enough, they just shipped them to a county and then they went to another prison. That's how gentle most of the camps are. Like those people could be out in community and they're not. Instead, they're, the taxpayers are wasting their money on having them incarcerated in these facilities that there's not much in the way of programs and rehabilitation, rather just a storage facility. Okay. It sounds to me like, and this is based on my anecdotal experience of doing this for a number of years, at least not having been through your experience, but having worked with people that have been through your experience. Yeah. There seems to be a need for a timeout. And what I mean by that yeah. is a timeout to either to get clean, to maybe reduce the stimuli, to reduce this kind of whirlwind of stuff that's going on in a lot of my clients' lives. A reset, if you mm -hmm. will. And then what I'm hearing you say is at some point, and I agree with you, that reset, 
that quiet time loses its effectiveness quickly after some point. Right. Maybe it's four years like that you've done. And that at that point, there needs to be this transition with learning of skills. So one of them is stigma. I don't know what to do about that. Certainly, you're right. You can still discriminate, I think, based on status, whether you're a felon or not. Even the fact of saying felon, I noticed today, and I hadn't heard this before, you used a term called justice impact. Help me define what that So a justice-impacted person is mostly felons, but it was interesting because I was talking to my daughter about how I'll be doing some travel with Dream to go to D.C. and to do some different things with that. And she was like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to come with you. She said, I'm a justice-impacted person, too. I lost my mom to prison. And so that term doesn't just encompass the felons themselves, but also their family and their loved ones they're also justice impacted because they did have somebody go, went, go to prison and they were impacted by it. The, the reason I like it, the term that you've used, and I hadn't heard it before, but it makes a lot of sense to me, is that the thing that doesn't change, whether it's 14-year-old Sabrina using diet drugs to get skinny or whatever, or the 37-year-old Sabrina using meth to keep it together, it's still Sabrina the person. Right. Person doesn't change right. in my view of life, but certainly... There can be things done to the person, can have things done to their family or friends. And so the idea of calling someone a felon, mm-hmm. that label, it's not even a label. It's almost an all-encompassing. It's a noun, mm-hmm. right? It's not even an adjective at that point. And right. by confining a human being to that noun, if you will, is unfairly limiting, right? And maybe makes it easier for the rest of us to discriminate, to treat you differently, to push you aside as not mattering. Right. But like I said, we get an out date, but we don't get the end date. And so... For years to come, if I go to apply for a new job, if there's a box that says you have to check this if you're a felon, I'm still checking that box. It could be years from now. And so where's the end? Like, is I feel like justice needs to um, encompass some of the humanity and have leave some room, you know, to say that somebody has been restored. Because when does it end? Like, when is the punishment truly over? Right. When does... Right. I love the way you said that. You said you have an out date, but not an end date. And that's, I never heard that before. And that's awesome because I I certainly believe that to to the extent that your rights were taken away for a while, which they were. Yeah. It seems to me that from a justice standpoint, justice would require that if you earn them back in whatever society dictates, that your justice would require you to be restored to where you were before you went in. Right. Like a roadmap. So like here's your here's your crime, here's your sentence, and then here's the end. Like there's an end date to that. Like this at this point you become restored. At this point you are rehabilitated and you've done your time. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Right. You know what I mean? Like just not just like haphazardly like, well, you're out of prison now. Good luck. See you later. And then oh, you're on supervised release and then you're done with that, but you're still a felon. And you're still checking that box because it's okay for society to discriminate against us because it, it's all based on fear. I think everybody, people want the right thing. They want the same thing. They want safe communities. But I feel like we're harming our communities more with these lengthy sentences without these guardrails up for when people get out. We're just creating more sentences and more time for people incarcerated and more people incarcerated. And we're creating more felons. I mean, like, the amount of felon we're going to be the majority here soon. It's not going to be too much longer when we're taking over the earth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like the felon zombie nation. I don't know. But I mean, if you think about all the people that are going, that are in prison right now, and then they're going to be coming out, and then there's going to be a new wave of them. But we're multiplying 
like mad. We will be the the majority soon enough. Let's talk a little bit about the other part of justice real quick. We talked about the mental side, and certainly they're not separate, but the this itinerary, what I'm calling this itinerary side, the ankle bracelet side, when you first told me about the itinerary and having to plan out a week in advance, it's like, that sounds so confining. But then at the same time, it's like, that sounds so cool because <laughs> ideally every minute I spend on this earth, I want to be intentional with it. Whatever I'm doing, even if I'm just sitting daydreaming, I want to be intentionally sitting and daydreaming. Right. And you have to sit down and do that. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool idea. You have the ankle monitor, so that keeps you what? Making sure that you're, that's the, one of the guardrails you're talking about? That's one of the guardrails. So that ankle monitor has to mine, line up with the itinerary on where I'm at. And so what else is out there? And then for you, and then certainly at some point you'd have to be weaned off of that, if that's the right term, or how, how does that, yeah. how would that work in your? So the next step would me, for me would be the supervised release. And so at that point I would have a PO that I would check in with, but the itinerary would be gone. So I've been doing this for 32 months. And so I feel like I'm good. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I hated this thing so bad in the beginning. But now that I look back over it, I'm like, I'm tired of it. It's exa- I'm exhausted by it. But at the same time, like I see the value in it. And I wish it was a tool that they use more for more people, you know, instead of just keeping them in a halfway house, but giving them this opportunity to transition into this, to, into society with these guardrails up. It, you take back your own schedule, you but you you are taught to to make your own, and so yeah, the BOP is not telling you what to do anymore. You're creating that schedule, and they're telling you if it's okay or not. But it's not; it's still something that you have to follow. And again, it's a guardrail. All right. So as we kind of come to the close of our hour, tell me a little bit about a little bit more about Dream.org. Okay. What you're doing with that, and then I know you have a blog and a TikTok channel, and if you could talk to us a little bit about that and where people could find you. Sure. So I got a fellowship with dream.org and I had a friend send me the link for it. She's I really think you need to try to get into this because at that point I was screaming from the top of my lungs to everybody with ears that Kansas City did not have a federal halfway house. And in the state of Missouri, there are only two halfway houses. There's one in Springfield and one in St. Louis. And the closest one to Kansas City is Leavenworth and the next one's in Topeka. So you have this giant area where people are not getting the service of a halfway house. And the majority of federal inmates are going to use halfway house services in one way, shape, or form, whether it be to have a transitional living place or to be on home confinement like I am and be monitored by the halfway house. And so anyway, she sent me this link, and I filled out the form and sent it in, and then I had my first interview with them. It was supposed to be about 20 minutes. Of course, I get on a soapbox and state my case why there needs to be a federal halfway house in Kansas City. And and so anyway, I got the fellowship. And when I did, they were like, your dream project is to get a federal halfway house in Kansas City. And I was like, that's kind of a big deal. I don't know if, okay, I signed up for that one, didn't I? I did that to myself. And so anyway, I got into this fellowship and it's awesome because you do it by Zoom, which is perfect for my situation because I can't travel. And so Tuesdays and Thursdays, in the evenings, I would sit down at my table and I would get on my Zoom calls and I would connect with 14 other people and we would discuss our, what we wanted to do. But then the mentors would take over. And, and so every day we'd learn about something different, things about lobbying, fundraising, things like that, like anything that you can learn about to become an, a better, become an activist or a better activist. Mm-hmm. 
And out of that program, some of these people started nonprofits and different organizations and joined in with other organizations. And there's a lot of us that'll go on to do like the cohort, the Justice Cohort for Dream. But Dream's amazing. And the majority of people there are justice impacted, but have gone on and done great things with their lives. They were very instrumental in the First Step Act. Right now, they're working on the Equal Act to try to get the sentencing disparity between crack cocaine and cocaine on an even playing field. And and they're doing great things. They're awesome. So I, I got into this fellowship, and this was my dream project. And I didn't really know where to go with it. And I thought, well, I'm just going to start going through the motions. Fake it so you make it. And so... I found out about some of their other Zoom calls for different things. You know, I work during the day, but in the evenings, a lot of times, I'm like, let's see what's going on in this Zoom call. So I hopped on this other Zoom call, and I ended up connecting with Kendia Milton, who's a very dear friend of mine, I love him to death. And he and I kind of had a side chat about, I'm like, I'm in the fellowship group, because we were talking about the CARES Act, too. He's like, I've not met any of you guys yet, but you're doing really good. That's awesome. Your recidivism rate is so low. This is impressive. And so anyway, we got to talking, and I told him, I said, there's not a federal halfway house in Kansas City. I said it shut down in 2017. So he get, he got involved, and he actually came to Kansas City. He set up a meeting and came to Kansas City and had a meeting with me in Emanuel Cleaver's office to talk about the federal halfway house. And that when we pitched that idea, I told them that I would really like to partner it with the unions because the workforce for the unions is so bad right now. And then you have all of these people that are going to be coming back to from prison that not only have to work, but they're mandated to work. And so why not marry those two? Mm. So after we had, and they loved it, they loved the whole thing. So after that meeting, actually before the meeting, I'd pitched the whole thing to my dad, my poor dad. Uh-huh. He has to hear all my great ideas. But um, he was able to connect me with the AFL-CIO for Kansas City, who's the elected official um, for the unions. And so I ended up meeting with him. He loved it. He loves the idea of it. And so he's gotten very much involved. Um, he's actually friends with Cleaver, and that's been interesting. But he also he connected me with a federal judge who's been amazing and helpful in this process because we're just, you know, trying to get it all put together. And so slowly but surely, it's starting to come together. And it's just really interesting and fun to watch because, again, you have these people in in positions of power that are like, we need to do this. This is going to make a better community. And it sounds like we need to do this because what we're talking about, just so we make sure the listeners understand, is how do we set up the greatest, I guess, probability of success when people leave prison where choices are removed, probably to just lower the temperature Mm -hmm. and get the mind to relax a little bit. Now they're going to be confronted with all these things. And how do we transition them back into society? Right. And without a halfway house, without someone there to provide these services, you're just, we're just throwing them out into society and just hoping it works. Right. But not just that. I don't want this just to be your typical halfway house. And I know I'm not going to get everything that I want, but But having a halfway house in Kansas City not only helps the people in this area because they won't have to travel so far to go to these other halfway houses, but it can help our labor unions. So when somebody comes into leaves prison, comes into the halfway house, they can work with the unions to not just get some kind of some job. Once they get into the unions, they have a pension, they have health care and they have hope. They can actually build a career off of these union jobs. So why not? If you can build them a roadmap and really show them like, hey, this is a good way. What do you think about this? Instead of being like, hey, good luck. 
here's a nice, here's a plant, go sign up out there, whatever. But here, if in Kansas City, you know, if we can get this on a, a major corridor where we've got, we can take care of the travel or even, we've got to have it on main corridor so everybody can function and to not just function, but to thrive. And so in 2017, the second chance, the funding for it was quietly cut. And so it shut down 16 halfway houses across the country. It also eliminated the cognitive behavior therapy as well as took away the social services director position for the halfway houses. And those are really key things to have because, like I said, you have to have a comprehensive plan for people. And it's not going to be the same thing for every person. Like for me, I've got the support. I've got my I've got different things. I don't need all of that stuff. But there are some people that are not going to have that support. And so you have to get those guardrails up. And what do those guardrails look like? Is it training for conflict? Is it training for is it is it therapy to help with their trauma? I don't know what it looks like, but you've got to have the people in place and the guardrails up to be able to catch this, these people before they fall and be like, okay, I'm not saying baby them and hold their hand through the whole thing, but come up with a plan because if you have them as your project as a project manager, that project is going to fail. Mm. You can't leave them in charge. They don't know what they're doing and their brain is not firing on all cylinders to where they can make these choices and come up with these plans and be productive. That's interesting the way you say that they're not ready yet when they get out of prison to be project manager of themselves. Yeah. And they need that training to do that. And that's what the halfway house and the services there can do. Just real quick, again, so our listeners understand, if there's a halfway house in Lawrence and Topeka and one, two in Missouri somewhere, why do you need one in Kansas City? What why, what does that do to have one physically located in Kansas City? So two things. First of all, with the home confinement, if you're on home confinement, you have to drive and check in with your halfway house once a week. And so for, to me, I have to drive to Topeka, Kansas once a week, which is fine for me. I have a reliable vehicle. My job is a salary job, so I don't have to take off work and do that. But I drive 88 miles one way just to go and do a quick check-in and then 88 miles back. I also, that's also two and a half, three hours out of my day to do this check-in. Well, there's a lot of people that have jobs that that doesn't work great for them to be able to make that trip all the way to Topeka or even Leavenworth. And do you have to live within 90 miles of your... Yes. So you have to live within 90 miles wherever the halfway house is. Yes, you do. And I so see. that creates a problem for people further east of us where... You know, if if they're trying to, there's no halfway house east of Kansas City. There's no halfway house east of Leavenworth. And so you're, you've got these giant areas. That's a problem. But the other thing I see is like with Leavenworth, there's just not much out there. And so if you can bring them to Kansas City and get them a good union job and get them housing right here and a job and transportation in this area, then I feel like they have a better opportunity to thrive. I see. And so... If a halfway house is in Kansas City, it provides, first of all, it's easier just to fulfill the requirements of being right. on supervised release on the CARES Act because you have to report every week in person. Right. It's less of a drive. It's going to be closer to some tra public transportation. You're closer to services that they would provide. Right. And in addition, Kansas City being a more populated area likely has more job opportunities there, including the union jobs you're talking sure. about. And so the failure of it being here kind of scatters people around and there's, without having a central focus. It sounds like lessens the opportunity for people to succeed. And in addition, in 2017, as you indicated, the Second Chance Act 
got rid of potentially social programs within the halfway house in any event and took out the director of the social services for the halfway houses. Right. Now, even if there was a halfway house in Kansas City, at least as it's phrased now, it's just essentially a less restrictive holding facility for inmates. A lot of the halfway houses, I think, are less restrictive housing. I mean, it and they're, they're kind of dreary and there's some of the halfway houses can be pretty bad. There's no hope. You, you bring people from prison where you've got a gym, you've got this social aspect to it, where you've got a community there and people are working and they're doing their thing and they're all over the place going back, doing whatever it is they're doing. And then you bring them to a halfway house and you're just in a room. They're, it's, they're small and there's no gym. There's no, you know what I mean? So you're taking stuff away. At prison, you have a church there. You've got a leisure rack or rack or whatever, and you can move about. But in the halfway houses, you just got, you have people sitting in a room watching TV and there's a little kid uh, jungle gym out back. That's. It sounds, it sounds dreary. It, I'm starting to get depressed almost thinking about it. Yes. It's dreary, depressing. And I think what you've indicated, which seems to be the factor it always needs is just hope, right? You hope that there's hope. something better for yourself or whoever. And if you don't have that, the ability to kind of face your demons, face your challenges, I think, becomes just almost in, oh, yeah. incredibly more difficult. Yeah. If people want to learn more about you, I know you're on TikTok, which I do not have TikTok, but I, I did watch, <laughs> I saw your TikTok, and I know you're also on Medium. I am on Medium.com, and so Sabrina could, Morgan. Sabrina Morgan. And what do you write about on Medium? I write about mostly prison experiences or just different justice things that I'm advocating for and just little things about my life, but mostly justice, mostly prison. And then the same thing with TikTok, too. Like most of my videos are about prison. I do a lot of stuff geared towards people that are on pretrial because I didn't have a lot of guidance and help on my pretrial. Reentry needs to start right when somebody's arrested because there's mm. just so much that they go through. And if they can have some sort of support and some sort of guidance and somebody that can that hears them and knows where they are, I think it's really important. And that that's what I do a lot of on TikTok is to try to help people through their pretrial. And I help people reach out to me. And a lot of them, I just give my phone number to. And I talk to a lot of people that are about to be incarcerated just to kind of try to help them soften the blow of their journey. What I hear you saying, and I was trying to think, I'm still fascinated by this itinerary idea, and I'm trying to think about how to put it in my own life, but what if when someone's arrested in the federal system and they're placed on pretrial services, that they're given an itinerary, a long-term itinerary at that point, that will include pretrial services, that will include, I will just, from my own experience, if you're arrested in a criminal and gun case at the feds, you're going to prison. I mean, mm -hmm. there may be an exception, but for the most part. So that we have an itinerary for pretrial, for prison, for post that. And so there's almost mile markers and goals that are set. Yeah. And I think that's, I don't know. I mean, I'm talking from an outsider, but it would seem like that stability, that idea of a plan would be helpful to people. Is that I right? I agree. And I mean, I also feel like like that pause that you were talking about earlier, how somebody some, needs like a timeout. I feel like some of that could be handled, like a lengthy pretrial, like it was almost three years for me. And by the time I really hit prison, I had already been clean for since the day I was arrested. And so I had already made some pretty big changes. So I feel like lengthy pretrials, if that could be coupled with some additional training or therapy or things like that, where you've got these guardrails up, 
that it should be some sort of a way to test the climate of that person and determine, do we really need to do these long sentences? What have they done during this time? And I feel like it could be a measure. I feel like restorative justice and diversion programs are so necessary also. I had the opportunity to speak at a drug court in Platt County. Mm-hmm. The judge, right before he retired, he asked me to speak. And I went not, I thought I was just going to talk to a couple people. I didn't realize that all the past graduates and the com- county commissioners and the judges and attorneys and police were all going to be there for me to speak to. But they were. And I. it was nice. I got to speak about my situation and everything that I'd been through. And then I got to listen to the new graduates speak about the program. And they have a less than 10% recidivism program. But what I watched there is that the community, they came together. During their drug court, they have guardrails up all over. And if these people choose that this is what they want to do and this is a this is the change that they want to make, they're there to guide them through. They have people ready to hold their hand and take them through that thing. And I think that if we can expand that to other areas and even like, the, you know, I know federal has some drug court stuff, but I feel like that can be expanded on because I know I sat in a federal prison with a lot of people that I looked around thinking, what are you doing here? What are we doing here? After years of being there and nobody's trying to break the rules, what are we doing? We're just just wasting time. We're just wasting time. And these people that sat here just wasting time now once they get out, they're, they're, they have a whole new battle. So let's get them going on that. I like that a lot. Sabrina, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. And again, if people want to read your blogs on medium.com, where do they go? Sabrina Morgan. Sabrina Morgan. Thanks so much for being here. Today. Thank you. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not necessarily of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes and podcasts under the News and Public Affairs tab on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to volunteer to produce the show, please click on the contact link at the top of the KKFI webpage. Tune in for the rest of the 9 a.m. weekday lineup with Arts Magazine on Tuesday, Arts Speak Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 on Fridays. Up next this morning is Dr. Mike's Morning Medicine Show, followed at noon by the 45 Hive with Clinton Martins. Stick around for the Jazz Canadian at 2 p.m. and Blues with Mother's Mix at 4 p.m. You can go back to Information Radio with Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m., followed by Law and Disorder at 7 p.m., Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale at 8 and Noche Magica at 10 p.m. Please keep your dial on 90.1 FM, home of Kansas City Community Radio. (laughs) 